Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. the root verb, and if you want to say, let us praise, you would say, hallelujah. The U is the first person plural pronoun. And the name of God is Yahweh, so it is hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is simply the Greek form of hallelujah because the Greeks don't have the letter H. So that's what we're saying when you say hallelujah. Let us praise God. Which, by the way, is what we will do throughout eternity. Uh, we will be worshiping and praising. And uh, as uh, I, I don't know, I, as John was talking, I was trying to figure out, when we get to heaven, is like the archangel Gabriel going to stop us in the middle of it and say, wait a minute, you Baptists aren't bouncing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we will be moved by the Spirit of God already to be bouncing. We will be set free from the fetters of our conformity and we will all dance before the Lord and we will do so. And it will be a miracle of God. I will enjoy it. But that's, that's kind of the way worship is. It, it kind of uh, uh, just sort of sneaks up on you a lot of times. And uh, there's, a, there's a big emotional uh, uh, dynamic to worship, and, as well as an intellectual uh, aspect of worship as well. Uh, Paul, in the letter to the Romans, probably has one of the most sustained intellectual uh, presentations of the gospel that, that you can find. Um, he's gone through 11 chapters now of talking about what it means to say that the power of God is found in the, in, in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe. And then he says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And this is what has confused us all along. It has confused us on two, two levels. One is if you're Paul's invisible Jewish friend, it has confused you that Paul keeps saying, you know, the Jews need salvation. The Jews are also sinners. The Jews also fall short of the glory of God. That though the chosen people and though having been used by God in a mighty way in, in the pages of world history, yet Jews need a Savior. And so the gospel talks about the fact that Jews are sinners. But at the same time it says, and Gentiles, you are sinners too. Everybody's sinned. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody is deserving of death. That is the wages of sin. And so it's a, it, it, the, the, this gospel comes along and it says, everybody fails. Everybody deserves the wrath of God. And so God has taken everybody and put them in a box called disobedience and sinfulness. He has shut everybody up into disobedience. But here's the other surprising thing about the gospel. The Jew is saved, not by race, but by the grace of God. 
And the Jew is saved not by works of the law and by the sacrificial system, but the Jew is saved by faith and trust in the grace of God. That's an amazing thing. It just sort of catches you by surprise because the Jews thought all along, I'm going to be saved by my DNA. I'm going to be saved by my nationality. My race is going to save me. And Paul says, no, it is grace of God, the shed blood of Jesus, that's going to save the Jew. And not only that, that same blood of Jesus and that same grace of God is going to save the Gentile. Everybody in this room ought to be overwhelmed with that fact that the Gentiles who seem to have been left out, the Gentiles who by the Jews were pushed out on the periphery of their thought, they thought, well, God is focused on us and he doesn't care much about the Gentiles. The gospel says, no, God is vitally concerned with who we are as Gentiles. He wants to bring us into the same salvation by the same grace, the same shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he brings us, us, us in with the Jew by faith in the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing thing. It's not what you would have expected. It's not what Paul's invisible friend expected. It's not what we would have expected. We would have expected a system of works, of law, of religion. But it turns out to be the grace of God. And so Paul, at the end of 11 chapters of, of teasing this out, what it means that the grace of God comes to all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek and to the Gentile, he comes to the end of it and says, and so it turns out, God has shut up everybody into disobedience in order that God might have mercy on all. And that's an amazing thing. As Paul is thinking about that, he's, 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 he's writing the letter to the Romans. Well, he's probably dictating it. We'll we, we see that when we get to chapter 16. We'll see that. But uh, Paul's probably dictating that. And I, I can just see him sort of walking around the room and he's dictating the, the, the letter to the Romans. And he says, yeah, Romans 5, 8. You know, that's a good verse. I hope they memorize that. And he, and he goes on and, and, he, and he's talking to them. And he, and he comes to them and, and God has shut everybody up into disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. And Paul has one of those worship moments where it just breaks out. And he says in the original Greek, wow. <laughs> now, actually, that's what he says because that, that first word in uh, verse 34 or, or 33 where it says, oh, the Greek word there is oh. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the letter omega. It's a long vowel O. And so Paul just says, whoa, God saves sinners. He has mercy on sinners. This is incredible. Oh, I can't, I can't get my mind around this. How, how wonderfully deep is God in every aspect? We would not have thought of this. We could not have contributed this, to this. But God has done all of this. Oh, all the praise and all the honor and all the glory belongs to God. That's what happens here. Just before we go from the... Um, the practice or, or the theological section of Romans into the so-called practical section at Rome at, at, in chapter 12, Paul just says, let's just stop and praise God for who he is. And that's what he does. Now, uh, before we read it, I want to give you one other word. It's the word inscrutable. I'll be reading the English uh, Standard Version, and, and they, they chose to use the word inscrutable because they knew that the meaning of the word inscrutable is, by and large, inscrutable. And, uh, you know, we, it, I, I mean, admit it, when somebody uses the word inscrutable, you just pretend you know what it means. You, <laughs> I had to look it up. But uh, the Greek word there is a word that means uh, you can't tease out all the lines of meaning 
of something. You ever, you ever see a kid's activity book and one of the pages will just have a lot of squiggly lines in it? And uh, it's, you know, what line connects Billy with the red balloon and what line connects Janie with the green balloon? Am I the only one who, see, who knows about these things? Okay, come on, admit it, it's okay. Some of you do those puzzles, don't you? <laughs> okay, but that's, that's the idea of inscrutable. Being able to trace the lines through all the networks and all the connections and see how it all works and fits together. And Paul says, God's grace and glory is inscrutable. You can't tease it out. You can't trace it all down. You can't figure it out. It's far beyond our capacity to understand it. That's what God's grace is. Yes. So let's read the passage together. It starts at verse 33. And Paul, riding along, he says, oh, wow, this gospel going along. God saves the Jew. God saves the Gentile. He saves them by grace. He shuts them up in disobedience. But all oh, the grace of God, he has mercy upon us. And as a result of that, Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And everybody in this room says, Amen. Amen. Oh, how deep God is. And some of you have lived on the West Coast and you've actually put your toes into the Pacific Ocean. I have. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> but I did, you know, and I put my toes in the ocean and uh, this would be as a child and went in a little bit uh, deeper and it got up to the ankles, maybe up to the waist. And as a child, that was far enough. Some people got in all the way and just swim out a little bit and swim a little bit back. And all of us were swimming on the surface of the ocean. Let me tell you, that Pacific Ocean thing is mighty deep. There's something called the Marianas Trench. You hear, ever hear of it? It's a big scar carved in the bottom of the uh, western, southwestern Pacific Ocean, just south of Guam, actually. And this is um, a very low point. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it's the deepest part of the ocean. It has more water on top of it than any other place on the planet. It is so deep that if you took Mount Everest and put it in the bottom of the Marianas Trench, there'd still be a mile of water on top of Mount Everest. That's how deep the Pacific Ocean is. And when you're surfing along or swimming along on the edges of the Pacific Ocean, that thing is deeper still than you can imagine. Ah, some people went down into the Marianas Trench. They went down in a little thing called the bathyscaphe. Bath uh, the, the first part, bathos, is actually the Greek word for deep. When, he, when Paul says, how deep is God? He's using that word bathos. And so the bathyscaphe is a deep scape. It's going down into the depths of the ocean. They got down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. They've been deeper than anybody else, but they had not been closer to the center of the earth than anybody else. They hadn't gone as deep as they could have, I'll put it that way. Because the earth isn't spherical, it's actually flattened at the poles enough that there are portions of the seabed of the Arctic Ocean that are eight miles deeper than the Marianas Trench. So when you thought you got to the deepest part, it was deeper still. And that's who our God is. 
No matter how deep you go into God, he is deeper. No matter how much you understand, there's more. No matter how impressed you are as God, he is more impressive. No matter what you think and imagine about God, he is more glorious, more wonderful, more majestic than anything you can imagine. No wonder Paul paused at the end of the gospel saying that that grace of this majestic God is given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. He pauses and says, oh, how deep is God? How deep are the riches of God? How deep is his wealth? For it all belongs to him. If God were to take all the jewels and all the diamonds of earth and hold them in his hand, he would look at them the way we would look at a handful of sand. It would mean nothing. If God could uh, just take all the stars of heaven, he would hold them in his hand and all the glory and all the beauty and all the wondrous power of the stars would be but a speck in the palm of God's hand. All the beauty of creation belongs to him. The glory of the mountains, the wonder of the valleys, the beauty of the rivers and the streams, the majesty of the oceans, all of that belongs to him. It is all his. Oh, how deep are the riches of God. Do you understand that's why Jesus said be anxious for nothing? He said don't, don't worry about things. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about your life. Just look at the lilies and look at the birds. Now, it's not like Jesus was saying the birds and the, and the lilies have got it figured out. You know, they don't work very hard. God takes care of them. So you hang in there and you be like birds and you be like lily heads and, and you just go ahead and, and somehow you'll muddle through the way they do. No, what God, Jesus was saying was, look at the lilies and the birds because when you do, you will be pointed right past them to the glory of God who owns it all, who provides for them. He will provide for you. And so when Jesus says, be anxious for nothing, he's not giving you a survival technique. He's giving you a reason to worship and to praise our Father in heaven. It all belongs to Oh, the depths of the riches of God. He is able to care for us because it all belongs to him. And we glorify the Father when we trust in the riches of God. But can we trust that he knows what he's doing? Yes, we can. Because, oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. You know, normally we, we make a distinction between the wisdom and and the knowledge, we think of knowledge as being um, just awareness of facts, having certain facts rolling around in your head and and that's what we call knowledge. And we think of wisdom as being that which is able to use knowledge to decide what the right thing to do is. And wisdom can see how the facts relate to life and how the facts relate to each other. But here's the deal. True knowledge knows how all the facts work together. True knowledge knows the intimate relationship of facts from one end of the universe to the other. True knowledge, absolute knowledge, knows everything about the interrelationship of the facts of knowledge. In other words, in order to be perfectly knowledgeable, which God is, you would have to be perfectly wise. In order to be wise, you have to have all the facts. You have to know absolutely everything there is to know. And so in order to be all wise as God is, you must know all the facts. In other words, with God, wisdom and knowledge merge into the same thing. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Wisdom is the ability to look ahead and to plan ahead and to see what the ramifications of an action today will be today, tomorrow, next year, off out into eternity. You know, 
I, uh, I don't play chess anymore because I have a, a, a healthy respect for the game and I wouldn't do that to, to chess players. But at one time I thought I was okay at chess and I, and I played a little bit, bit of chess. But I remember the day that John uh, came up to me and said, Dad, let's play a game of chess. And I said, aha, this is a great teachable moment. I can teach him about patience and I will teach him how to think ahead. I will teach my son by teaching him how to play chess. And so we sat down and we put the pieces there and said, Dad, you go first. So I took white and I sat there and I looked at the board. I did that because I know you're supposed to. <laughs> I've seen it on TV. This is the way chess is played. You, you, you just look at that, that thing. And you're supposed to be thinking, now, if I move that, that happens. If I move that, that happens. That moves happens. I just, I just looked at that stare at Finally, I said, I've got him. Pawn to queen four. I sat back because I figured he'd have to study the board. I, I, you don't, do you remember this? I remember this. Because I sat back and John just said, hmm. I said, you can't do that. I didn't say it to him, but I said to him, you can't do that. You've got to study the board. So I looked at the board and I studied. Now I'm starting to get worried. I'm saying, yeah, control the center of the board, have radiating arms of power, the pieces, you know, control the center. Oh, that's a, so finally I said, John did this. <laughs> About 10 moves later, we quit. We, I, I had something else to do. I wasn't going to finish that game. A son should never see his father cry. Not like that. But I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm doing really great stuff. I'm planning two and three moves ahead. And this kid had memorized the whole opening. I found out he had joined the chess club. <laughs> with the ability to look and to plan ahead, the scientists have come up with a computer. It's called Big Blue. They retired it because Big Blue play, played uh, an international uh, world champion chess player, Boris Spassky, I think it was. Was it? It was somebody like that. Karpov. I think maybe it was Karpov. Anyway, it played the, uh, the, the world champion and, and, and uh, lost once, but beat him, t beat him. And, and, and the Russian chess champion refused to play with the computer anymore because computers shouldn't see a chess champion cry. But, but <laughs> see, where, whereas a man can, can look at that and he can plan 20 moves, maybe, maybe 25 moves ahead. That computer could look a thousand, a ten thousand, could look a hundred thousand moves ahead, had an inexhaustible library of moves and games and could know how it was working and playing out. But I'm telling you this, that Big Blue, that computer that could play chess and look that far ahead was nothing compared to the wisdom of God who sees what's going on. I mean, you do know that Job had that problem with God. I'll just shorten the story. Job was a man who had great wealth, had a fantastic family, and the devil took it all away from him. So Job winds up on an ash heap with sores all over his body, and all he's got for support is his wife. His wife who says, why don't you just curse God, and then he'll kill you, and it'll be over with. All right. So that's where, where he is. His friends come up to him and start talking to him about what's going on. And Job basically is saying, I don't think God knows what he's doing. I'm a righteous man. I don't deserve this. If God would just talk to me, I could explain to him why I shouldn't be suffering these things. God eventually talks to him and Job says, well, God, I guess I have to agree with you. You actually see more 
You see, Job could see the suffering he was having in his own life that day. He couldn't see the millions and billions of people who would gain comfort and solace by his experience over the ages. He could not see how God would use Job's life in order to teach others about the real meaning of faith and reliance upon the wisdom of God. And what Job thought was a miscue by God turned out to be a brilliant move by God for all eternity. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. Nowhere did God seem more foolish than on the cross of Jesus Christ. It just didn't make any sense. It seemed like a foolish thing to do, to take the Son of God and let him die for sinful man. It seemed like a foolish thing to take the one who knew no sin to die in the place of those who had sinned and rebelled against God. It made no sense to take the one who was the prince of heaven and knew the glory of all eternity and put him on the shame of the cross, there suffering and bleeding for us in order that we might attain to the glory that it was not ours by right, but is ours by grace. That doesn't make any sense until you see God at work in Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, we will sing, worthy of the lamb that was slain for us and we will magnify the Father because of the Son. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God for us. See, we have trouble trusting God a lot because we don't know how deep his wisdom is. It's as if we think our wisdom could match his. Oh, how deep is the knowledge of God. How deep are the things that he knows? You see, we don't have enough knowledge. That's why we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. I took a class in American foreign policy in the 20th century. And um, don't remember the class, but I remember that the professor, Professor Ball, said at the beginning of the class, you cannot judge somebody's decision by information that came up later. You can only judge them by the information they had at the time. Folks, God never gets any information later. He's got it now. When we pray, we're not, we're not telling God something he doesn't know. When we bring our, our concerns and, and our, our needs before God, we're not informing him and he's got to come up with a plan. God's knowledge is so deep that it is unsearchable. It's, an, it's a, oh, the, the depths of the knowledge of God about our lives. And so Paul cries out, time eludes us, but just, you know, oh, the the depths of, of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then he says this, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. How past understanding, past finding out are the ways of God. You know, sometimes we wish God would explain some things to us. And I'm telling you, if he did, we wouldn't understand it. I have a little book in my library. It might be 100 pages or so. It was written by Albert Einstein. It's called The Theory of Relativity. In the opening chapter, Einstein says, I decided to write a simple book to explain the theory of relativity to anybody who had a knowledge of high school algebra. I thought that was me. I bought the book. I started reading it. And in the first chapter, here's what I find out. The theory of relativity has to do with the coordination of of separate systems that are moving in relationship to each other. And what we are trying to find out is how we translate the coordinates of one system into another system while they are in motion. And so Einstein says, well, of course we know how to do that. And we do. You just use Lorenz equations. Do you know what Lorenz equations are? I didn't either. I had to look them up. There's Lorenz equations. How did he get those? I don't know. 
But there they are. And, and so Einstein starts this thing where he says, and so from this equation and this equation, we get this equation. He said, I didn't get that equation. You know, one time I took two of those equations. They were separated by a paragraph. And I spent about three pages of algebraic computation to get from there to there. I said, this, you know, life is too short for this book. I turned to the end. And the book says, and therefore E equals MC squared. And I said, that's great. I can go with that. I couldn't understand Einstein. What makes me think I can understand God? What makes us think we can understand God? Because his ways, his manner, how he does things, it's unsearchable, unfathomable, untraceable. It's beyond our understanding. We got to be glad it is just very quickly, then Paul says, oh, the riches of God, the riches, he's so far beyond us. And then he asks these three questions. This is in verses 34 and 35. Uh, these, these are, by the way, drawn from the Old Testament, as you would suspect by now. But he, but he says, for who has known the mind of, of the Lord? In other words, he takes that thing. Who has the knowledge of God? Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. Who has the mind of God? Who knows the mind of God? Can I have a show of hands? Or who has been his counselor? Who can give God wisdom? Who can go to God and say, God, you know, you're missing a a few things here. You'd actually do better if you just change your approach to things, maybe soften it a little bit. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere with God doing that. You can't even, no, I was going to say something that would get me in trouble. Had to do with politics. Let's just say there's some people you just can't get through to them. But who has been the counselor of God? Who has the wisdom that he can tell God what he ought to do? Or who has given him a gift? Who has something that God doesn't have? Who can give God a gift and God says, wow, I always wanted one, never had one. Now I have one. I owe you, buddy. No, who has ever given to God a gift and expected that now God owes me and he must repay me? None. So you see how the three questions just take those three words and just works them backwards. Who, whoever could know those things? Now, I'll tell you some people who thought they could. The disciples were some. They thought they could counsel God. They thought they could tell God something better. When Jesus said, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be crucified. By the way, I'll rise again. But the, God, the disciples never heard that. They just heard the to Jerusalem and die thing. And so Peter comes up and says, you know, Jesus, you, you got it wrong here. Let me set your facts straight. I'll give you a better agenda to deal with. Why don't you do what my, my book in the back says with the chart and the diagram. Messiah comes. Jews are vindicated. Romans kicked out. We live in, in glory. Why don't we just do that one? And Jesus says, Peter, I've heard that, but I heard it from Satan the last time. And you need to get behind me because you're thinking the things of man and not the things of God. Oh, there were others who thought they could straighten Jesus out. And Jesus said to the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. Everybody said, wait a minute, Jesus, you don't understand. Only God can forgive sins. Let's let's give you a little database uh, of instruction here. And Jesus said, look, I knew that. That's why I said it. Only God can forgive sins. I'm forgiving his sin. Do the math. Oh, they tried to straighten him out. One time Jesus got up from his disciples and says, I'm going to Jerusalem. They said, Jesus, you can't go to Jerusalem. They want to kill you there. Jesus looked at him and said, and? 
I, I thought you were going to tell me something I didn't know. I know they're going to kill me there. That's why I've got to go. And he went. To his credit, Thomas rose up and went with him. See, we keep trying to improve on God. We keep trying to tell him what to do. We keep trying to improve on Jesus. And you just can't do it because the depth of God is seen in his riches and his wisdom and in his knowledge, in his ways and in his judgments. God is exceedingly, unfathomably rich and deep toward us. So Paul says, well, you know, when you, when you look at all that, I mean, you just got to come to this conclusion. And he, and he has, this is verse 36. And this is where the prepositions are fun. I feel like Kid Rock, you know, uh, you know Grammar Rock video. Prepositions are fun. Yeah. These are good prepositions here. Because Paul says, for, for from him, from him. Preposition there is ek. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but, but it means coming from the side of God, originating with God, and moving out from God. All things are from him. He is the source of everything that is. Nothing exists without and apart from God. It's all by his doing and by his creation. I love science. I love the discoveries of science. I love to see what science unfolds in the depths of the, of the cosmos and in the smallest, minute subatomic particles and watches the mechanisms inside the cellular structures. I love what science does, but I'm telling you, all science ever does is study the handiwork of God. All science can ever do is tell you, we couldn't do it, but here's how God did it. They don't know they're saying that, but God's using them for his glory. They might be an atheist scientist, but God is using that scientist to point us to the glory of his creation and how he did it. You know, years ago, like 100, 150 years ago, science was actually called natural theology. It was the theology from nature. It is what nature taught us about God. People have abandoned that. I understand the arguments for it. I understand the history of why we no longer talk that way. But I think it's pretty cool that when you look at nature, you're looking at a book all about God. Everything is from him. And all things are through him. The Greek preposition there is dia. It means God is the agent through which things take place. God is the one who sustains creation. You do understand that if God were to withhold his sustaining power from the universe for just a second, the entirety of the universe would collapse instantly. If you thought the Big Bang was something, just watch the big collapse. Because without God, we are nothing. And the moment he withdrew himself from creation, creation goes back to nothing. He is the agent that sustains it all. And so in our world today, you're seeing God at work. We may not see it because we're not wise enough. We may not understand it because we don't have enough knowledge. We may not be able to incorporate it and embrace it into our heads because we can't trace it out. But God's depth of wisdom and knowledge and power is, is that by which he works and moves in creation. He's the agent of creation. And then it says, all things from him, through him, and to him. The preposition there is ace. It's a a word that can also mean 
into. So you could translate this either all things are to him and all things are into him. That is, he is the goal to which all things are moving. He is the purpose for which all things exist. He is the reason for which all things take place. It is all about God and the glory of God. He is the goal of all things. And so he is the source and he is the agent and he is the goal of everything that is. He is eminently worthy of praise and worthy of worship, worthy of adoration, worthy of our love. He's worthy of us getting up in the morning and coming to church and banding together just so we can have a taste of heaven and glory for just a few minutes. He is eminently worthy of these things. Oh, how rich and deep and wonderful and wise and knowledgeable and powerful, unsearchable, unfathomable. God is who has created all things. And so Paul, at the end of this verse, he just bursts out. He says, to him be glory forever. To him be the glory forever in all things. To him be the glory That's why the most practical thing you can do with your life is live for the glory of God because that's who you are. You were created for his glory. That's the world you live in, created for his glory. That's the culture that surrounds you being used for his glory. That's why you have friends and family for the sake of his glory. It's all for the glory of God. And if we would just get that straight and live for the glory of God, we would live the best lives imaginable. Oh, and the most practical sermon I can preach to you is a sermon about the glory of God. I mean, the other things are helpful, you know, the steps to happiness, the steps to financial freedom, the steps to raising children, you know, all, all that's wonderful, and we do that, and discipleship training and all that. But unless you know and are sold out to and passionate for and connected to the glory of God, you'll just miss it all. And so we just cry out with Paul, oh, the depth of God. Oh, the depth of God, to him be the glory. So I'd ask you this week to just worship God every waking moment and trust the Holy Spirit to keep you worshiping God when you're asleep. Just worship God in everything you say and you do. Every venue, that conflict you're having, that success you're having, that, you know, when, you, when you're, you're guiding the children, when you're, when you're uh, establishing relationships, when you're learning something, when you're teaching something, all for the glory of God, because thereby you connect up with who God is and who you are meant to be, and that's how the grace of God just flows into your life in a very practical way. And that's why today's sermon is one of the most practical sermons you'll ever hear. Oh, the depth of God. Let's pray together. And yet, Father, we are still impressed with ourselves. We're impressed with the world. We're impressed with the power of the evil one. We're impressed with the knowledge of experts. And yet, Father, we look in other places... Let your Holy Spirit just be poured out upon us. Turn our eyes heavenward. Fix our gaze upon your throne of glory. Father, give us hearts that are passionate about worship, lives that are dedicated to bringing you praise, expressing our adoration. Father, give us lips that will speak the name of Jesus often so that others will hear his name and fall in love with who he is. 
Father, let us worship you in spirit and in truth by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.